Hey, Bob Gurr here, legendary Imagineer. I've just had a fantastic time answering a whole bunch of crazy questions that some of them are not so crazy for Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 106 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I'm glad you're here. In this episode, we conclude my much-delayed interview with Imagineer Bob Gurr. In part one, we talked quite a bit about some of his memories of Walt Disney, as well as his work on Disneyland, including clearing up some confusion about some specific terms. Toward the end of that first half, we started talking in more depth about his work after Disney, as Gurr Design. In this episode, Bob talks about whether he has an estimated lifespan for attractions when he works on or builds them, using the monorail as an example. A bit about the short-lived Viewliner attraction at Disneyland, whether there's a difference in how he designs one-shot pieces or attractions versus ones that are supposed to last a long time. The flying saucer he created for the 1984 Olympics. The lighting rig for Michael Jackson's Victory Tour. A very little bit about his work on the interior of President Eisenhower's aircraft. Being a glider pilot for 50 years. Whether he's afraid of heights. Some of the interesting little projects he got to work on over the years that he doesn't usually get to talk about what he learned about himself and how to approach these challenges and how they shaped him personally and professionally. The one job he bid on and got that didn't turn out as planned. His thoughts on how to help kids be more engaged in learning. How to help a child use the interests they have to learn the things they need to know. What he never gets asked that he wishes people would ask him. What inspires him. His advice to you for following your dreams. It's unlike anything any of my guests have shared before. How to develop your curiosity. And, of course, shameless plug time. Now a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much... We host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. 
You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. So that makes me think then, do you have generally an estimated lifespan for these things when you build them? Like we expect it to work for this long and then it's probably going to have to be replaced with something else. No, I don't, uh, I don't recall we ever had any specific idea of that because generally speaking, attractions go until the next attraction that will be built in that same space to replace it. Or it might be replaced by yet a, a newer design. Let's say look monorail. Monorail, the first one was the Mark One, which was started designing in '58, middle of uh, uh, middle of June 1959. It went uh, into service, and then of course we wanted to improve it. So by uh, 19, um, oh my God, yeah, end of the '60s, yeah, '68, we had the uh, uh, Mark Three. Then of course with Florida, we had the Mark Four. Then we redid the Mark III at Disneyland into the Mark V. Then we redid, uh, built a brand new train in Walt Disney World, the Mark Seven or the Six rather. And then uh, in Disneyland, uh, we now have the Mark Seven. So each, in the case of that monorail, it's gone through uh, a lot of improvements over the years. Autopia cars, goodness sakes, we had uh, Mark One, Two, Three, Four, Five, Six, Seven before I got one that worked. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and of course, uh, the Mark 7, the basic chassis uh, was a 1968, and we still use that chassis today, but uh, with a newer body. Uh, Mark Mark 7s uh, with the original body still run, and uh, they run in Tokyo, they run in Walt Disney World. Um, other attractions are there for a temporary fill in use. The uh, little Disneyland Viewliner. Mm. It ran only about a year and a half because Walt was going to do the 1959 Tomorrowland project, which was big. So we had a lot of spare land in the back lot there. And he said, well, let's just put a railroad in. Railroads are real cheap. You know, we got so we got ties and, and ballast and some rail. You know, Tony, our, our railroad guy, he put in a railroad track. Of course, Bobby will build a locomotive and a train for it. That's real easy to do. It's just one of those things. So we knew it was temporary. But that was okay. The fact that it was temporary today, it's one of the most mysterious trains anybody's ever read about. That Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people have never even heard of the Viewliner. And in the case of the flying saucer at the closing ceremonies of the Olympics, uh, that was to last 15 minutes, and it lasted its 15 minutes, and it was uh, we took it all apart and put it on a truck and hauled it away the next day. So is there a difference in the way you approach designing something that's intended to be kind of, you know, like the flying saucer that's a one-shot, 15-minute use versus, you know, King Kong that's supposed to operate several times a day, every day for years? Sure. If you know it's a one-shot and uh, it doesn't have to last too many hours, uh, I would, you know, like for a bearing or a motion part, Sure, just drill a hole in it, shove the pin in it, and squirt some oil on it, and we're done. But if something's going to last for a very long time, I will be very careful specifying what type of uh, uh, bearings I would use, you know, whether it's uh, ball bearings or or self-laying spherical bearings. And I'd always pick out a bearing that would be a little bit bigger than the calculations, 
just because it won't cost you that much more to make it like say one size bigger because the money you save by never changing that bearing in the life of the machine uh, is the best economics you can get. So you're always aware of, have I got a quick and dirty one shot or have I got something that's really got to last? If it's got to last, we're very careful with uh, paint systems, uh, anti-corrosion systems, uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, surface treatments you got to do to parts, uh, corrosion stuff particularly, but uh, quick and dirty, we don't even paint it. Sometimes the rust looks pretty good on it. <laughs> sure. And especially for something like the Olympics closing ceremonies, I imagine that that flying saucer was relatively far away from the actual viewer and was being lit up by theater type lighting and everything. So they were going to make it look the way that it needed to look. You didn't have to worry too much about the polish and exact appearance of the exterior, I would think. No, you're correct, because first off, it's a lighting device in the sky hung from a blacked out helicopter. You don't see the device. You only see the lighting pattern that that lighting pattern creates the, the image of a flying saucer with a red beating heart and a big eye that's searching the ground below. Uh, you don't ever see the shape of it. Okay, so you really didn't weren't concerned much about the the external appearance because it really was just that lighting. You were just really creating a structure that created the lighting effect that was needed. Yes, I'm creating an illusion in the sky for 15 minutes and keep it changing and moving around so that people are always running about a minute behind saying, what the heck? Oh, what is that like? Oh, look what it's doing now. Oh, my gosh. Well, we don't let it do anything long enough for them to figure it out. And then it's gone. Uh-huh. You can go on the Internet today, and people are still uh, looking at uh, video from uh, ABC, mm -hmm. and they're still arguing over what it was. <laughs> is that kind of gratifying to you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I could tell by the look in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about working on uh, the project that was needed for Michael Jackson's Victory Tour. Yes, we got word one day that Michael Jackson wanted to come out to our shop, which was... Um, I, I think we all kept changing the name of the company. I think it was called Applied Entertainment Systems uh, out in Silmar. And he brought his brothers out, and he brought his project manager out uh, for the work that they do, and a little roller-on cart with uh, television equipment. Because when Michael looks at stuff, rather than take notes, he uh, videotapes everything that he does. Uh, because uh, he's quite a student of... Uh, Intricate designs of everything, uh, intricate technology. The guy was right on top of everything and how it's done. So we had him out there for about two hours showing him everything, and he was playing with some of the animations and stuff. I really didn't know who the heck he was, really, because all I knew was uh, he sings and his hair was burnt in a Pepsi-Cola commercial the week before, so he had this goofy-looking hat. And uh, I had to read Time Magazine the next day to find out who it really was. Um but anyway, then uh, without warning, he says, uh, say, Bob, can you design uh, uh, special lighting for my uh, my new show? Well, I'm not a rock and roll guy. He's 26. I'm 50. Um, so I had to be a quick learner. But I just cornerly suggest, I said, why don't you get up in front of the conference room, dance a few bars, and I'll see if I can figure out what you want. And, of course, that horrified some of his people, you know. <laughs> uh, but he did. And we had about 45 seconds of a uh, little bit of flapping about and looking at each other. And then the project manager, uh, Peyton Wilson, comes over and says, 
hey, Bob, we got to talk. Michael's leaving right now. So we were invited to participate in designing something. You know, the job got launched the next day. Within a week, I had had a design, had a model built, had it in his hands, went down to a recording studio, showed it to him, and he says, yeah, let's do that, just like that. Normally, you rent lighting equipment, mm -hmm. but in this case, he wanted something custom. And, of course, when he said he wanted it, his finance guy looked at him and says, Michael, what are you going to do with that one when the show's over? And he, he snapped real quick. He says, that's my new patio cover. <laughs> <laughs> so here was a case that we got a 26-year-old kid who was a, a, a brilliant genius who I didn't really know and, uh, and an old guy who, who always will take a job if, it's, if it sounds good. And that was nine weeks, start to finish, built it, tested it. I even was flown down to Alabama for the first loadout for the first full rehearsals to uh, refine everything. In the meantime, guess what? I get to learn the rock and roll industry. I get to meet firsthand all the people doing lighting, trusses, overhead cranes, cables, audio, everything. I met the neatest people in that whole Jackson uh, Victory Tour uh, team. I was just, it's such an education. If you take a job you've never done, guess what? You are going to learn a whole bunch more about somebody else's stuff. And I don't have to pay for it in a college engineering school. That's right. You get to learn right there in real life with the people who are doing it. Yeah. So what was different about that lighting system or that lighting structure that he wanted that didn't exist before? Well, you can't go to a lighting house and order up a 50-foot uh, diameter flying saucer that runs with a helicopter that has a has a beating heart and a 10K searching eye on the bottom and um, equipped with about 400 uh, par lights and a whole bunch of strobes. They don't they don't make those. Really, I could have sworn I saw that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, that, that's what they wanted, you know. Uh, and, of course, you, you got to have somebody figure it out. So there was a number of people involved. We had uh, a jet engine company uh, uh, that built little solar jet engines. We had a, a guy that did uh, electronic control panels. We had uh, equipment that we would rent. I came up with the design of the structure. It had to be portable because we had to uh, put it together, take it apart, move it to different uh, test locations. Um you know, it, it, it was just a lighting rig, you know, a lot of aluminum welded parts, a lot of the trick funny stuff, a lot of cables, um, stuff that, you know, I had never done before, but now I, I kind of knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and speaking of uh, flying and lighting rigs and, st you know, just this, this kind of, uh, okay, I don't know where that transition was going but it as you were describing what you were working on it did remind me of as i was rereading some of the stuff that you've written about things that you've done this jumped out at me uh the very secretive temporary job at lockheed working on final interior designs for president eisenhower's columbine today known as air force one uh, my dad was an aircraft mechanic for 15 years and so that jumped out at me as a really interesting project that you had worked on uh, yes, I did that right after I came back from uh, Detroit. Uh, so that job was in uh, 1953, uh, late summer. It was done through the uh, Henry Dreyfus Industrial Design Company in Pasadena. It was given to me as a subcontractor, and the job was so secret 
that for years I I almost forgot that I ever did it. Um, uh, obviously, you know, because it's Air Force One, you know, it was called Columbine uh, Two at that time. Um, you just ignored everything that you worked on, so that you're you're never supposed to speak of it. But uh, I was finishing up some of the design of the interior, doing a lot of the renderings, what it's going to look like, uh, developing the uh, final presentation packages to the uh, White House and uh, Lockheed management. Uh, the only comment I'll make was uh, I didn't think much of President Eisenhower's color schemes, but we were paid to paint them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you were paid, and that the, the, the uh, lack of preference for it really wasn't all that important. Yeah, well, it was his airplane. <laughs> That's right. I guess if you had to fly in it every day, you might have pressed a little bit harder. <laughs> but you've done your own flying. You know, you're. Uh, avid uh, soaring pilot, or, or at least I know you were for a long time, right? Yes, uh, my dream uh, as a little kid, uh, airplanes, just uh, airplanes and cars. That was my my big passions, and and I saw a uh, glider uh, being exhibited in an air show at uh, the Glendale Airport, which later was the um, uh, the uh, design campus of Walt Disney Imagineering. And, of course, uh, it wasn't until I was in my uh, late 20s that I had a chance to uh, go up in a glider. And that started a, a, a career, if you will, of 50 years of flying gliders and motor gliders. Uh, we, in those days, you'd have World War II surplus gliders. They were really cheap. You know, they're made out of wood. We'd do our own maintenance. And then I would gradually work my way up into, you know, more modern aircraft. And then the last 25 years of flying, I had an aircraft called a motor glider, which is a 57-foot wing, two-place, side-by-side, all composite structure, sliding canopy, stick control. And so it was a great big heavy glider. It had a motor in the front, so you could take off by yourself. You don't need a tow plane with a rope. And I would just go up and literally fly all day all over Southern California with no motor, up sometimes as high as 20,000 feet, just and enjoying flying with the birds, enjoying what the planet looks like uh, all by myself and just do that for 50 years. It was just a complete joy. Wow, that sounds amazing. And I assume you're, then you're not afraid of heights. Well, above 30 feet on a roof or a ladder is fatal anyway, so it's strictly it's moot that you that you went any higher. <laughs> <laughs> Once you pass 30 feet, you might as well be at 20,000, right? <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So we touched kind of briefly on several of these projects that you worked on uh, since 1981. Uh, I know you also worked on, I believe, Knott's Berry Tales at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh I didn't work on it as such. I was uh, the chief engineer at the company that uh, built the creatures. And in that respect, I would uh, direct some of the work, uh, coordinate uh, some of the manufacture. But it was not for me uh, any kind of a hands-on other than some technical assistance to the people uh, doing the details. Okay. Okay. So are there any projects? I know when you do get to, to talk about this a little bit, you have the go-to projects like King Kong and the pirate ship at Treasure Island and that kind of thing. But are there any projects that you've worked on that you're uh, particularly proud of that maybe aren't quite as high profile that you don't get to mention as much? 
Uh, I did uh, right around 250 projects over 45 years. Uh, some of the little ones were kind of interesting. There was one in Las Vegas particularly. It was at the um, Rio Hotel. It was called the Masquerade Village. It ran for, I guess, a little more than a dozen years. Matter of fact, a little bit more than that, I think. The idea was um, uh, the fellow that um, owned the Rio Hotel wanted to put in a floor show, but hang it from the ceiling. Um, and so if you visualize a series of balloons and, and like rose parade floats with horses and carriages, and the whole thing is kind of a dream sequence, and it runs around on an overhead track hidden in slots in the ceiling. Well, Tony Marnell, Tony Marnell was the owner of the Rio, and he was a good friend of Steve Wynn's. And uh, they had this idea, and I thought, well, that's really neat. That's interesting. There's, there's nothing difficult about that. So I wound up doing the entire uh, con preliminary configuration, then involved in the um, uh, engineering of it. And then as far as the actual vehicle was running, I did most of the drawings myself production drawings of the uh, carriage that ran up in the in the tracks. You know, later on, uh, it kind of startled me that the show would run, you know, about every hour, and, and uh, Rio would sell tickets for people to ride. They'd give you a costume, and you could throw beads at people, and you're riding around up in the ceiling. Now, stop thinking a minute. When you do overhead stuff, you don't want anything to fall. You can't have any nuts or bolts falling down. Mm -hmm. Well, the floor was uh, covered with people and slot machines. Now, Tony Martell told me, he says, I'm so much smarter than his buddy Steve Wynn. He says, I have a floor show. I hang it from the ceiling, so all of my floor is 100% revenue space. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty smart. Yeah, and then it was like, you're not supposed to ever engineering have something that'll fall. And then they... People pay to throw beads. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote it one time. It was very cute. <laughs> Interesting. That, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've written out this next question because I want to make sure I ask it in exactly the right way. So I'm going to be looking away here so that I can make sure I ask this exactly right. Um, as listeners just heard, you've worked on a massive variety of projects over many years. Some you were trained to do and some you had to figure out. So what did you learn about yourself or about how to approach these challenges that played the biggest role in shaping you personally and professionally? The movie will come out next year. <laughs> it's called Bob Gurr Dreams to Reality. Stop and think what that means. You have a lot of creative people. you got a Walt Disney. You have Steve Wins. You have Steven Spielberg. Almost anybody. They have an idea. That idea is in their head, and it gradually will flesh out into words, eventually words on paper, eventually pictures on paper. It won't do a bit of good until you find the people that can actually make the physical thing. And that might be in a, a building. It might be in show stuff, costume stuff, almost anything. But when it comes to mechanical stuff, the mechanical stuff was uh, the part I liked and it was natural for me to listen to what a person wanted in their dream. And I could figure out also, in my mind, several ways to do that almost at, in the, the, with their very first words. 
So it was not a challenge. It was mostly a case of, wow, that sounds so cool. I can't wait to get started. I really want to do this job. And by the way, here's some uh, starting ideas how we could do this thing. And then I would be in a position where not only I would get the job, sometimes it's preliminary uh, concepts engineering, then pretty soon it's bid documents. And in some cases, I do the production drawings myself. And in some of them, I get to do the testing or the test driving, as I'm always there on opening night. Sometimes I have a cast member uniform, and I'm demonstrating it with the band playing and the media there. So I got to see all sides from a dream and and an entrepreneur's head until listening to the band play and watch the photographers take the pictures. That is a big span of work. Did that for 45 years. Loved every minute of it. And then in recent years when people say, how did he do that stuff? Now we're back to trying to explain how did I do it? But I must say, in listening to about 10 hours of uh, television interviews with eight different people, uh, I begin to get an inkling of how I did stuff. Now, the funny thing is, it would have been nice to know how I did stuff while I was doing it. But I didn't appreciate, no, really, I'm sorry, uh-huh. I didn't appreciate that till a lot later. Because, you know, if, if you do stuff different than other people, you might not notice that because you might think, and think to your own mind, well, you know, I just do I just do stuff like other people do stuff. It's just that they're a lot slower, and I, and I, I just zip right along and don't have any problems. Well, there's the distinction. I somehow failed to see the distinction between, let's say, the way I would do it and the way most people would do it. And the other curiosity that people pointed out, Bob, you have no license. You have no engineering training. You're completely unqualified. How did you do this? So there's the conundrum. Mm-hmm. You'll have to watch the movie next year. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for it, definitely. Uh, and now we talked earlier about the fact that if you saw a job that you knew was just not going to work, that you just wouldn't bid the job. But were there any that you thought were going to work and it just never quite worked out the way you thought it was going to? Yeah, I had one that I was kind of nervous about, but it was a pretty small thing. It was a Michael Jackson thing. Um, He had a program uh, show called Bad, and they wanted to have a device that was in a, a touring case you know, something uh, a little bit longer, wider, and higher than a typical uh, casket. And the whole machine had to fold up and go down the casket. And then when they'd take it on the show stage, this thing would pop up and spread out and make this kind of a, a sign that was, looked like an old Navy Navy signs where you're sending signals across the ocean with mm-hmm. blinking lights. Mm-hmm. And it would have this flickering word, bad, but it was done with uh, like little horizontal strips. Well, it it didn't work well at all. Uh, I was very embarrassed about it, and um, they used it. You know, we got paid. They used it, but it was just it was not quite uh, the successful machine I, I thought it would be. So that was about the only thing that was close to a disappointment. But it did the job. That was it. That's what mattered. Is it got the job done? Now, I have a few kind of broader questions as we start to wind down here 
I, I know you had a bit of a rough time in school growing up, but I also know that education is very important to you. And like you were just describing about being self-taught, not necessarily having the formal degrees or credentials or anything. And as we hinted at way back at the beginning, this is our second go around at this interview. The first one was back in March. And since then, I've had a baby. In fact, about two weeks after we did that first attempt was when my wife gave birth to our first daughter. And so this question now has even more personal meaning for me than when I asked it back then, because now I have a little person that I want to be able to uh, to help develop in this way. So do you have any thoughts on how to help kids be more engaged in learning? Not necessarily more engaged in school, though that might be part of it, but to be more engaged in learning. Yes, backing up a little bit, I didn't have a rough time in any of the schools I went to. It was the teachers that had the rough time. No, I'm serious. Oh, I I understand. Yeah, I got, I got expelled from three schools. Uh, you know, one time to a military academy where the teachers were strict. We were given creative projects, something you get your teeth into. Uh, I would answer your question this way: You have no idea of the combination of DNA that any human is going to have as that child begins to develop, and it's usually pretty pretty strong by age about five, because their little hard drive is having its operating system being loaded, and shortly thereafter, it is so loaded, it's not ever going to modify the way it operates. A parent who has a dream that their child is going to fulfill the dream they have for that child usually is the first seeds of doom. Example. A fellow is in a golf club. A guy say, how's your kid doing? What's he doing? Well, if he's a lawyer, you're very proud to tell your buddies he's a lawyer. He's got a white BMW convertible. He makes a lot of money. But when you're the guy whose son is an artist, there isn't much that you can say, except they will feel sorry for you a little bit that he'll never amount to much of anything. Somewhere between those two extremes, parents have got to have their antenna up and watch that child. That child, internally, they almost always pick what they want to do and why they want to do it, and they can't explain it very well. Uh, that means they're on a course that is probably not your course that between the two of you, you have set. So being good observers... Uh, you could say that there's a way of channeling uh, and guiding a child. You keep the blinders back just enough, keep the crash walls back just far enough, and let's see what that course that child wants to do. Because by the time they get up into the 13, 14, 15, they're going to be uh, going into the eighth grade. That means you only got three or four years of free education before you're out the door. That's the last chance to get the free education and the last chance to be able to pick your way through uh, school and find the courses that are going to keep you on the path and feed you the information you want to have in your head to do the stuff you want to do. Now, a lot of times, uh, parents will be disappointed because that's not at all what they had in mind. But I have seen so many people grow up that the parents took a deep breath and says, well, that's what she wants, okay. And then guess what? They're the proud parents of some star later on because they were allowed to flourish in their own way. That's the answer. Thank you.
thank you for that. Um, what if, if I can continue that just a little bit farther, and then we'll continue on to something else. What if they're so interested in some of these other areas or pursuits that they just don't have any apparent interest in, say, learning uh, basic math skills or uh, you know, writing or something like that? Uh, is there a way, that, from what you've seen or done, to help them use the interests they have to start to pick up or you know, appreciate and develop some of these areas that they're less interested in but are still fairly important? Sure, it's automatic. They know the course that they're interested in. They know what they want to do. And as they go along, the tools they need, they'll go get them or they'll ask for them. It, uh, it, it, it's a self-solving uh, situation. There is no point forcing geometry on an artist. There is no point uh, forcing correct English on a person who's never going to write a book. I can assure you I got between a D and an F in all English classes that did not get in the way of me writing a book. That's true. Okay, good. Very good. Thank you. Um, Now, what do you never get asked that you wish people would ask you? Something that you just would love to talk about, but nobody ever asks the question, so you never get to talk about it. Wow. You know, part of your answering interviews is laying in wait for these kinds of questions uh, I get so many. Boy, you you got it. Got me kind of stumped there. I think I've been asked almost everything that I can answer. I'm just uh, I don't know. Somebody somebody will might may come up. There might be a paid psychiatrist uh, who wants to come up and says, "Oh, I know this guy's got something in there that nobody ever asked. So let me let me see if I can trick him and, and try it." So right off the top of my head, I don't think, I can't think of anything. Because it's just like, I get all these questions. So now you're asking me the question of a question. <laughs> right. So I think I'll just have to uh, stall out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Here's one that should be a little bit easier. What inspires you? Just waking up, at this age, waking up every day, Check my pulse. Yep, the blood's flowing. Okay, this is great. Uh, I go through a quick sequence of, boy, do you know how much stuff I'd love to do today? Do you know how? I wonder what happened during in the world during the night. I love to get started on the day, and there's so much news item, uh, news areas that I follow, so many industries I follow. So I might spend two hours every morning uh, catching up and following up every kind of subject. As the years go by, I get more and more interested in history. Example, right now we have, uh, you know, situations of, let's say, terrorism. We have situations that puzzle people. They don't know what any of this means. And a lot of people will start their observation by saying, you know, I just can't understand. Well, rather than do that, I say, hey, girl, why don't you find out so that you will understand? So this, uh, this causes me to seek out all kinds of information going back thousands of years uh, and, and really trying to track down the who, the why, the where, and the what, and the when, so that when I drag it all the way back to today's news, I can look and say, aha, there is no puzzle. It's a continuum of something that's been going on for hundreds or thousands of years. 
And this gives me great joy that I can sit there and look at the news or read the paper or look at the internet and say, oh, I know this stuff. I understand this stuff. But I can't have a conversation with anybody else because everybody else is either disinterested or they're on a sound bite. Uh, and they, in some ways, they're not interested in the things going on around them. They, uh, they have a lot of communication laterally with electronic devices. Um, but they don't have a curiosity that I have. Uh, all the people that uh, worked with Walt, curiosity was the number one thing. They were constantly looking up stuff, uh, whether they'll use it or not, but it gave them so much information that you could draw from, that you literally have this library of endless trivia in your head that you may never use. But guess what? A guy who phones up and says, say, I need you to design a, and then they say what it is. And guess what? In that little old hard drive in your head, there's a whole bunch of stuff you collected and it's in there and you can pull it right up and says, yes, I have some answers. Here's some answers there. I got a head start because I was curious. Mm -hmm. Curiosity is the number one. If you don't have it, I'm sorry for you. And if you have a little bit of it, work at it. I tell people, you know what Friday night is like? Rock and chair a martini, and I'm always amazed. I look back and I says, do you know what I know on Friday that I didn't know on Monday? And it might be completely useless. I'm 84. Why am I collecting information constantly and putting it in my spinning little hard drive that still runs at 7,200 RPM, and it's only got a very few fresh sectors left that I can load stuff in quickly? That's the way I live. That's wonderful. And I imagine that over the course of these decades, as you've collected all of this information and as you've worked on certain projects and things, that then when you're confronted with something new, sometimes these pieces, like you said, that you've put together and maybe some project that you worked on or some uh, some design that you did that wouldn't seem like it applies, you like all these pieces go together and you go, oh, yeah, this thing that I I did 30 years ago, it helps me understand this thing better because my it just shaped how my brain works, I think. Yes, the, these are the life experiences that you collect through your curiosity that you can use every day with your instinct. And that instinct is that DNA that you picked out the right parents and got the right DNA and you've been curious all your life. It makes it so easy to see, understand, and get enthusiastic over so many things. Absolutely. Now, you you talked about helping people, uh, especially entrepreneurs, that had these dreams and helping them to become a reality. Now, I know there are people who are listening who have their own dreams. and Maybe it's to work for Disney. Maybe it's some other thing entirely. But they're afraid, or maybe they've even forgotten that they had a dream once. What advice do you have for that person? Hopefully, you've been curious as much as you can, whether it's your natural behavior or you're getting used to doing that. And the fact that uh, you want to avoid being in a position of a been there, done that. The most fatal thing you can do is to go into your 20s so blase that you think you've seen everything and know everything, and you get very cynical. Um don't have conversations around you with people that are negative. 
the enthusiastic things that you want to seek out and do, don't even tell them what you're up to. You should start that in the eighth grade, at least, knowing that the rest of the people are going to try to crimp you down and get you to fit their group. And you don't want to be the dork and you don't want to be the nerd. So the less you say, as you're growing along, you spend your own time on your own inners uh, and recognize that distinction. And yes, all these disappointments come up. But guess what? The more stuff you try that doesn't work, you get a bigger and bigger list of the stuff that doesn't work. And the doesn't works is the picket fence that you put all the good designs on because you know where the good designs are going to fit. And that can be legal, medical, almost almost anything that the fact that you collect failures and be sure and collect other people's failures when things don't work. Pay attention to why something didn't work so that you have a big collection of the don't ever do it like that. And that way that will allow you to pick the courses that are going to be the most beneficial for the stuff that you want to do. And that enthusiasm will just become automatic. Fantastic. And do you have any recommendations for people who want to develop their curiosity on maybe a couple ways that they can start to do that? Because that's obviously a big part of what you've been talking about here in the last few minutes. Poke your nose into any subject you know absolutely nothing about. When you go out with some people or you go to some events or something, or even when you sit and read something, or Lord knows, everybody's got an electronic device in their hand, whether it's a laptop, a smartphone, or whatever. If you've got a spare few minutes, why don't you learn to stop playing those freaking games? Do you know when you're playing games, all you're doing is training your responses and you learn absolutely zero. No new information comes into your head. Why don't you take a little time out of the day and go on the Internet and just fly off in any direction and say, I don't know about this. I'll push some buttons till I find out about something. How does a violin work? I can't play one. Well, it'd be nice to know how they work. Oh, we all drive cars. Cars are stupid and complicated. Uh, well, I want to know how an automatic transmission works. Well, let me go poke in or I might learn something like that. You know, it's an endless variety. Uh, you'll think it's completely useless, but guess what? You will get into the rhythm of inquiring about stuff. And that means if you don't quite have the natural curiosity, you can kind of train yourself to be curious by the fact that you sit down and force yourself to do something like that. And again, it's very important. You have all these hours devoted to the video game. Just take a part of that and say, okay, this is my 20 minutes of snooping into the useless information because I might use it someday. That's great advice. And I can actually speak from experience that that really is effective. I am pretty naturally curious, but I do the kind of thing that you described pretty often, especially if I am researching something I need to know and then something catches my eye and I think, huh, I want to know about that. And then that triggers something else, and three hours later, I've learned a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know before and that I may never use, but it was really interesting and it was fun to learn it. Those are the exact golden words. You got it perfect. (laughs) Thank you, and thank you for that advice. So the final question then to wrap up here, and you've already mentioned this, at least part of this a couple times, so I'm going to give you one more chance here at the end. Anything that you'd like to mention or promote? We call it shameless plug time here on the show. Uh, you've mentioned that uh, documentary that's going to be coming out. So if you, you, know, if you want to mention that again or anything else that you want to tell people how to find you on social media or anything, go for it. 
Well, I just slipped in uh, three totally painless commercials already for <laughs> the conversation here. I was impressed. Uh, yeah, to be more specific, uh, keep your eye out for a 50-minute uh, um, documentary, um, very professionally done. It's called Dr- Bob Gurr, Dreams to Reality. It'll be out at an unspecified time uh, next year. It's uh, virtually complete now. Waiting for a little bit of image licensing from the uh, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, you can always go to uh, Facebook to uh, Bob Gurr. Uh, I don't have anything to do with it. I'm not on Facebook. I don't and I don't put my time in any kind of social media because the social media is uh, tidbits of information circulating round and round with no uh, useful input. Um, but there's things that you can do if you go to Facebook uh, and Bob Gurr, you'll find that the fellow that runs that site, there's new stuff that comes out roughly every week, and you'll see that uh, what I've been doing, and the what I've been doing is kind of a clue to the stuff you ought to be poking your nose into. So that's one little bit of a guide. Also, there is uh, numerous uh, YouTube uh, postings. Endless, endless stuff. Some of the most recent ones was uh, I gave a talk at Google this past summer. It's a one hour. It's uh, very, very high quality. You can find that on the Internet. Just go to uh, Talks at Google. Uh, They have people come in about uh, once a month that are very interesting. Uh, The moderator uh, had a terrific line of questions. So if if you want to know a lot more in detail about Walt Disney and how he worked, uh, that's a very good one to, to go look at. But once you start poking into some of them, you can poke your way into other ones. Uh, another crazy one just came out, uh, Random Land. Anybody's ever been to Random Land, you'll uh, appreciate uh, Crazy Justin. He's quite a, uh, quite a character. He can get people to talk about stuff or look at stuff in a very funny way. Uh, so there's a couple of suggestions. Okay, thank you. And I'll put links to those things in the show notes, too, so that people can find them pretty easily and start down that path of exploring and discovery. So thank you so much for your time and for your patience both tonight and as we got to the point of being able to reschedule this. I really do appreciate it, Bob, and I appreciate your time and your stories and your wisdom. Well, it's been fun answering questions. I don't mind uh, answering endless uh, intelligent questions as long as they're going someplace rather than, say, uh, you know, the simple questions you usually get out in the public somewhere, which is, yeah, same old stuff. But when somebody is inquiring and they want to know a little bit more, a lot deeper, sure, I'll take all the time in the world. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Bob Gurr for being my guest and to you for listening. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like my book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. You can pick that one or any of the 180,000-plus audiobooks as your free trial book, and it's yours to keep whether you choose to continue your membership or not. I got the reporting for December just recently, and I can see that a couple of you took advantage of this offer last month, so I appreciate that. Um, To download your free audiobook today, if you haven't already taken advantage of this, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com slash audible for your free audiobook. 
If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or if you've had any special Disney experience you want to share or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney has done, I'd love to hear from you, too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, and soon you'll be able to get Stories of the Magic through Google Play Music. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening or pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, but this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.